Hey everyone, a quick note before we start today's episode, I want to point you to our brand new website at guiltgracepod.com for all things guilt, grace, gratitude, all of our podcasts, their categories by type, by episode, by season, by author, by topics, by all those good things. So everything guilt, grace, gratitude podcast you can find at guiltgracepod.com. Dot com, as well as our brand new confessional podcast network, which will be housed at confessionalpods.com. We have our inaugural sets of podcasts who have joined us, and we have more who are coming on board pretty soon. And you can also find the confessional podcast network on anywhere good podcasts are found. If you guys can help us in any way financially, go to guiltgracepod.com to give and donate. We have a lot of big plans for 2023 and beyond. and We would love for you to partner and support and build this bridge to confessional reform theology with us. Now, let's get on to this episode. The, the one stage, uh, Fantil would say, uh, get on the ground of the unbeliever and then uh, ask them, you know, the, the, the hard questions. Um, uh, how, how would they justify their own position, you know, given, given what they're thinking? Um, and, and, and begin to ask, you know, why they would believe uh, things like that. Because what, what you'll find out is there's really not much there other than their own particular belief. Well, I, I like this and I know some other guys who like this. And so this is, this is where I'm, I'm going to go. Um, I had this interaction in a book. Uh... Welcome to the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic Reformed tradition, delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, sponsored by Logos Bible Software, where we bridge the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. Today, we're on an apologetics episode. It's going to be on practical covenantal apologetics. What do we really believe? And our guest today is Dr. K. Scott Oliphant. And he is, if you guys don't know him, he's he's written a uh, book recently, Covenantal Apologetics, Principles and Practice in Defense of Our Faith. We'll attach that Crossway publication link to our show notes so you guys can look at that book. He's done a lot more other stuff out there that Peter will uh, explain when he does his introduction with him. But uh, take a look at our resources on our show notes. There's also a link to find a local confessional reformed church near your area. That's the most important thing that this show can drive you guys to a church so you can worship our holy God in person as we are biblically prescribed to do so. And then also just uh, reminders of resources of how to get in touch with us. Um, we're on social media, Twitter, and Instagram. These uh, recordings, these audio recordings are also, you can find them via video on YouTube. So another platform for you guys, if that's more uh, easy for you guys to listen and watch us. Um, other than that, uh, we have some other reminders as such as our bridge builders. You'll hear some words from our sponsors through the middle of the show. But uh, this this season, again, is really important for uh, apologetics focus and 
this guy really knows a lot about apologetics and uh, we're going to explain a little bit defining some terms and his approach on practical kind of more of a practical approach to covenantal apologetics and just answering kind of the broad question what do we really believe how can we engage with others um, what's the best way forward to engaging in some uh, biblical guidance on so so i'll let peter further introduce dr k scott oliphant Yep, we have Dr. K. Scott Oliphant, Professor of Apologetics and Systematic Theology at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. So kind of my uh, my alma mater sister seminary in a sense, I guess they birthed us, our mother seminary, uh, and has written numerous scholarly articles and books, including God With Us. He's also the co-editor of the two-volume Christian Apologetics Past and Present, a primary source reader. And Revelation of Reason, New Essays in Reformed Apologetics. So it's proper to introduce him in this Reformed Apologetic season. Thanks for coming on, Dr. Oliphant. Thanks for having me, guys. It's a, it's a pleasure having you on. And we both thought, or at least I thought, if we're going to talk about apologetics, we, we at least have to talk to a guy who's been known for Reformed Apologetics and kind of research into to Dr. Van Til um, as well. But for those who uh, may not know who you are, let our listeners know a little bit about yourself, your your background, how you got into this, and and your work. Right. Well, um, I was born and raised in Texas. Uh, met my wife there. Um, was actually raised as Roman Catholic, and huh. um, that's another story. It's the same as myself. And then, oh, is that right? Yeah. And then, um, toward my teenage years, I rebelled against all of that and became a rank pagan. And then um, the Lord. Uh, changed me uh, my senior year in high school. And uh, after that, I was involved in a ministry called Young Life, which is mm. an evangelistic ministry to uh, high school kids. Um, and it was it was during that time that I uh, began to read and think uh, about apologetics. I had a, a Christian philosophy professor at the university where I went near Amarillo, where I was raised, and um, he offered a course one semester this is at a state university, and he would he would entitle his course Issues in Philosophy, and he, he told me he did that so that he could offer whatever he wanted. So he offered <laughs> one semester a course on Francis Schaeffer. Huh. Schaeffer was just sort of um, coming into his own uh, at that point and had done a film series. And so I took that course, and this was my first encounter after my conversion to Christ. This was my first encounter of a thinking Christian, both my professor and Dr. Schaefer. And so that launched me into all kinds of areas and of interest. And uh, it was at that time then that I began uh, to find out about Dr. Van Til. Christianity Today did an article on Van Til in 1977. Uh, and his, his picture is on the front of that um, magazine. I have it uh, just above me here. Mm. I was my wife was able to find a copy of that. Uh, there's a picture of him there, and it says Cornelius Van Til, Legacy of a Down-to-Earth Scholar. And I got this magazine in my mailbox and opened it up, and there was an interview with Van Til. I'd never heard of him. I said he uh, had retired from Westminster Seminary. I'd never heard of that. But it also said that he had taught such luminaries as E.J. Carnell, Francis Schaefer, and others. So I thought to myself, I've read a lot of Schaefer, uh, most of what Schaefer had written at that point I had read. And so I thought I, I should probably read the man who taught him. So I went down to the local bookstore. We had those back then. And I, <laughs> I said to the man uh, across the counter, I'd, I'd like this book. It was mentioned in the article. It was Defense of the Faith by Van Til. And 
man said, I've never heard of the title, never heard of the author, never heard of the publisher. So he gets out his big, massive tome of books in print. He looks it up. He said, okay, that should be here in about a month. So mm. those that that was those days. Uh, you go to a bookstore, you, you actually mm-hmm. wait on your book. A um, month later it came, I began to read uh, until um, understood sort of what was happening. Much of what he was saying was not um, uh, quite understanding. And so I would take some questions to my philosophy professor and, and I would skip class and we would go to the student union <laughs> and I would say, tell me what this means. Tell me what this means. And he would he would work with me on it. And then sometimes he would say, I don't know. I'm not sure what's up there. Mm. So um, I wrote to, there was an address on the back of the book, Westminster Seminary, P.O. Box 27009, Philadelphia, PA, mm-hmm. 19118. So I wrote, I wrote the letter. <laughs> I said, I'm, I'm out here in the middle of the panhandle of Texas. I've got no good libraries. I have no resources. Is there anybody there who could help me with some questions that huh. I have and what I'm reading? And Westminster wrote back very kindly um, and uh, sent a note and said, um, Dr. Van Til is now retired. And, and he said, feel free to write him at this, a- at this huh. address, 16 Rich Avenue. Philadelphia. So, so I, I wrote Van Til, 16 Rich, and a week later received an envelope with some torn out spiral pages, you know, folded up <laughs> in a small envelope. And there it was. As a matter of fact, I found the correspondence uh, just recently. It's about 12 pages of his handwriting on these oh pages. Uh, so he would just answer, and then he would say uh, at the end, uh, please write again. So he was retired. He uh, was not teaching, and uh, his wife uh, was no longer uh, with him. She had just recently mm. passed away. So he he was he was happy to to help me. So we developed a correspondence mm. back and forth, and that's kind of how mm. I I came to be interested in Van Til. He he sort of helped me understand Reformed theology. I didn't know the terminology well. Yeah, it was a it was it wasn't as full as it as it could have been because it was sort of restricted to the things he was writing about. But it was a it was a wonderful uh, time for me, and eventually, Young Life, where I was at that point now a full time staff member, Young Life said, "If you're going to be full time in Young Life, you need a seminary degree." Hmm. And by the way, and by the way, they said we've we've linked up with Fuller Seminary, so oh, yeah. you can get your yep. degree during the summer and other courses. And so I wrote Van Til, and I said, "I just need some advice here. I, I'm, I'm on Young Life staff. Um, he knew that much about me. I, I need to get a seminary degree." They've linked up with Fuller. Or I can get the degree elsewhere. He very kindly wrote back and said, <laughs> um, you know, this is this is sort of up to you. But he said, I wouldn't spend my time uh, yep. under uh, professors who don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. Yep. You're, you're yep. going to have you're going to have a fight there. You might not want to get into. So that's kind of all I wanted to all I needed to know. So I, I wound up at, at Westminster eventually. So I wrote him and I said, it looks like I'll be coming to Westminster. He wrote me back and he said, uh, when you come up to look for housing, please stay with me and you can use my car to, to hmm. tool around the area and find a house. So I stayed with him for a number of days. And and then the one criterion that he said, both when he came to Amarillo, we ac- actually asked him to come to Amarillo and he stayed four days in hmm. our home. And, and the one criterion was, he said, you're going to have to take my daily walk. And his daily walk was <laughs> a two mile constitutional at a pretty good clip. And, yeah. um, and, and, I, and I would just pepper him with questions. I wish I'd had a recorder because he would you know he would answer huffing and puffing as we went along and he did the same when i came to philadelphia and stayed with him we took our, our two mile walk and um it was just you know i, I knew um I, I appreciated what was happening yeah. at that time i knew i was in the presence of 
of greatness. He wouldn't have put it that way, but um, yeah. this, this was a man who had taught me so much and um, taught me so much about himself when I, when I finally got to meet him as well. He was an evangelist at heart. Yeah. No, that's, that's what I've friendship. heard. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And I've, I've heard some of the story and I read, I've read some of the story too. Yeah. Um, and uh, cause I know Van Til is, is known for his presuppositional apologetics and we'll get into what's called or what you call covenantal apologetics. Uh, and though I think it's, I, I think it has been caricatured by a lot of people. How, how would you just dis- define and describe your approach and its scriptural foundations? Yeah, well, um, that could take the rest of the time, but let me let me just uh, try it this way. Um, wh- one of the things that that has impressed me o- over over my career um, is that uh, all, all that Van Til saw himself doing was taking the the beauty of Reformed theology, mm-hmm. as Van Til liked to say, uh, paraphrasing Warfield, Christianity come to its own. Mm-hmm. He, he liked to take the beauty of that theology. And uh, and press it in in the area of a defense of the Christian faith. Um, what what part of what motivated him to do this? I think it's important uh, for for people to see is that you know he he began his his education at Calvin College mm-hmm. uh, back in the in the twenties and um and and there he would he would read Kuiper and Bobbing. Now he could do that because he was from the Netherlands and, and he read, read Dutch. Dutch fluently, yep. speak Dutch, yeah. So lectures and those kinds of things were no barrier to him. So he read he read Kuiper, he read Bobbing, and he actually just grasped uh, what he was reading in a way that was impressive um, so that he was encouraged to do further study. Well, he moves to the East Coast to Princeton Seminary, and he he uh, he works on and earns a THM at Princeton. Uh, he he wrote uh, a THM paper on the will, the human will and its theological relation, and he received a, an award for that. Uh, so he worked on uh, the notion of free will from a reform perspective. He took courses from William Brenton Green Jr. and others, and then he went to Princeton University to get his PhD in philosophy. So I think it sometimes misses uh, people that Van Til was not just educated in theology. He would have called himself a theologian, but he got his PhD not in theology, but in philosophy and wrote his dissertation on Christianity and its relationship to idealism and also dealt there with uh, pragmatism. So what struck Van Til in this sort of theological journey was that while he was at Princeton, there were some things that uh, he was learning that were inconsistent theologically with what he had learned at Calvin. And he wanted to get to the root of that. And there's a long story there, but the root of that is that William Britton Green Jr. was um, enamored with and used in his uh, syllabus, which I've read and documented elsewhere, uh, common sense realism as its basic foundation for apologetic methodology. Van Til saw some discrepancies between what he had read from Kuiper, Bob Inc., even Warfield, mm-hmm. and some extent, to some extent, Hodge, and certainly Calvin. He saw discrepancies between that and what he was learning at Princeton. And so he began to work out, how do we make this more consistent, more faithful with what Reformed theology at its best has always said? Mm-hmm. That's what motivated Van Til. What he wanted to do was apply Reformed theology to the discipline of apologetics. Now, you may know that um, that Machen had him teach apologetics at Princeton just before Machen yep. left. Like a year or so, yeah. And that's right. And and Machen was so impressed with Van Til that by the time Machen, uh, you know, was basically kicked out 
of his denomination at Princeton. Um, by the time that happened and, and Machen went uh, a little bit south to, to found Westminster, he wanted Van Til to, to teach apologetics here. A historical question has been, was Machen a presuppositionalist? That's really an anachronistic question mm-hmm. because no one was at that point. The term wasn't even around. But what Machen saw in Van Til was the acumen of somebody who could take that theology and in the best way develop the discipline of Christian apologetics given that theology. So the, the this is the long answer. All that Van Til's trying to do all that he tried to do in his career was to make apologetics consistent with the theology of the Reformation. Now, there are a couple things. So I'm getting to your second question. There are a couple of <laughs> things here that are, are are vastly important in that. And I'm just um, realizing again in, in my own career how uh, central and crucial this is to understand. And and it's 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 um, it's Calvin's emphasis, not Calvin's invention. Calvin's mm-hmm. emphasis in his institutes on the census divinitatis. Mm-hmm. Uh, Warfield has this brilliant paragraph. Um, I was just reading it yesterday about how Calvin, because of his theological genius, really set out a plan, a new plan as Warfield liked to put it, for the structure of Christian apologetics, given Calvin's emphasis on the sense of Pentateuch. And Warfield sees this in the history of the church as something relatively new, certainly brand new in terms of its emphasis. Now, that's an interesting point, particularly for church historians. Uh, why did it take 1,500 years? That That's another issue we could address someday. But um, I think Warfield's right there. Um, it's not that no one had seen this. John of Damascus has a pretty nice um, uh, discussion on uh, the knowledge of God being innate. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a matter of fact, Thomas Aquinas mentions that yep. and rejects yep. it because he says there's no possibility the knowledge of God could be innate mm-hmm. or self-evident. You uh, because then we would know. Yeah, yeah. So um, that that's that's unfortunate. And, and Aquinas's exposition that I've read of Romans one is not a good exposition. Uh, Aquinas, in my view, was not so good at exegesis. He was really meant to be. He was a retrievalist. His mm-hmm. job, as William Cunningham puts it, is just to take what everybody has said, try to synthesize it, mm-hmm. pitch it out there. So that that sort of diminishes a, a central view of Scripture in in methodology. I think. My view, Aquinas was clearly a Christian and said some mm-hmm. some very good things, but I think there were some some pretty significant blunders mm-hmm. along the way. So so Calvin comes along and 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 with Melanchthon decides to structure his institutes according to the topics that are presented in the in the Epistle to the Romans. Mm-hmm. Now that's genius, and Calvin probably didn't recognize what genius it is, but he thought, if I'm going to write the institutes that's going to help the church in terms of piety, I think I'll take the book of Romans where the gospel's laid out so well, so clearly, so methodically, and I'm going to structure the institutes according to that. And what he, and what he began to do then was press home this reality, again, not invented by Calvin, but the reality of Romans 1, that all people universally, as a matter of fact, know the true God truly, not by virtue of their uh, uh, inferences and positive demonstrations, a la Aquinas, not by virtue of that, but by virtue of God's implanting the knowledge of God within, Mm -hmm. uh, both by what he creates and by 
the human heart where the works of the law are given. So natural law, all those things are a part of the knowledge mm -hmm. of God that every human being has. So, so when we're talking about uh, presuppositions, it's, it's really crucial for people to recognize at the time of the Reformation, there were two Principia. You, you probably know all this. So Principia is just a, a fancy um, uh, Latin word taken from the Greek word arche, and it kind of means foundation. Okay, yeah. so there are two foundations on which Reformed theology rests. Even Aristotle said you can't go back and back ad infinitum. You've got to stand somewhere in order to predicate something. And if where you stand itself needs justification, you've got to go back and stand mm -hmm. there. And if that needs justification, so you've got to stand, there's got to be a place. And, and in Reformed theology, there were two of these foundations. One is the foundation of existence. Every Christian would agree that that's God. Mm -hmm. uh, the second is the foundation of knowledge. And here's where the debate comes in. In Reformed thinking, the foundation of knowledge is God's revelation. You take Westminster Confession 1-4, the authority of Scripture, uh, which ought to be believed and obeyed, uh, depends what? Depends not on any man or church. Not on any man or church. Now, that's in contrast to Roman Catholicism. Yeah. What On what, then, does the authority of Scripture depend? It depends wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly upon God who is truth itself, and is to be received because it is the Word of God. That's Confession 1-4. Mm -hmm. Now, that, that's, that's Calvin's emphasis on the self-attestation, self-authentication of God's revelation. God's revelation is the foundation on which Christians stand. It used to be the church prior to the Reformation, Calvin recognized it can't be that any longer, partly because there's fallibility there, partly because there's change taking place throughout the history mm -hmm. of the church. So it can't be that. So Calvin had to wrestle with this. And again, his genius was, it's the self-authentication, self-attestation of Scripture. Now, you combine self-authentication, self-attestation of Scripture with the self-authentication of natural revelation, mm -hmm. and now you have a robust, full, reformed epistemology or theory of knowledge and foundation for what we believe and why we believe what we believe. And so what Van Til tried to do throughout his career, in my view successfully, was to help us recognize, unless you stand on this foundation, you will sink. Any other foundation is insufficient to support human knowing, only this foundation. And that means not only Scripture, although Scripture is primary, it's, those are the spectacles, as Calvin puts it, through mm -hmm. which we see everything else, but it depends also on God's natural revelation, which, as Paul reminds us, is clearly seen and understood, not, again, because we properly infer and demonstrate, but because God implants it. That was the uh, Reformed way of understanding, cognitio incita, implanted knowledge. God implants it within every human being by virtue of their being in the image of God, mm -hmm. such that everyone is without excuse. And the Greek word there, on apologetus, mm -hmm. without, on an apologetic. Okay, so there's no defense for unbelief. Now, Van Til's seeing this, he's reading Calvin, and he just spends the rest of his life trying to develop how this ought to look as we defend Christianity. What does Reformed theology help us do? So my own personal view, controversial as it is, 
if your theology is reformed, you've got no option but to follow Van Til's methodology because he's following Bob Inc. He's following Calvin. He's following Scripture. If your theology is less than reformed, there's no possibility that you could be reformed in your apologetic or covenantal in your apology. You need you need to be classical um, if if you're going to be non-reformed. And we can talk about how that works itself out. But I've never seen an argument ever uh, from a reformed classical person that doesn't at the same time sacrifice some of the robust character of reformed theology, particularly in the areas of epistemology and knowledge. That's helpful. That's a really helpful definition and helpful history behind it too. Yeah. And connecting some dots before my question for application. Um, Cause I know I, I just recently read some of the book um, covenantal apologetics. So I'm paraphrasing here. So correct me if I misspeak on anything, but you, you do mention stuff about like Christian philosophy of life versus non-Christian philosophy of life with, when it comes to application when speaking to people and then you know you like you mentioned Romans 118 you're appealing to the consciousness of the conscious knowledge of God to others when you're speaking to them and so I mean Romans is just such a great book on of for apologetics like you were talking about right and then I heard you mention um, the book of nature and the book of scripture the two ways God reveals himself did I connect all right. those things pretty well for you yeah, me? yeah, that's okay. exactly right. And Vintel has this wonderful article. Um, the faculty of Westminster put out a symposium, I think it's in the late 40s, called The Infallible Word. Mm-hmm. In that symposium, Vintel's got an article called Nature and Scripture. And there he begins to develop. And, he, and you can see Voss uh, in there. You can see mm-hmm. the influence of your hardest Voss, one of his teachers. And you can see um, him working with how do we think about uh uh, natural revelation. And what he basically does there, it's not all that he does, but part of what he does is say the attributes that we ascribe to uh, scripture, necessity, authority, sufficiency, perspicuity, those can be applied to natural revelation as well in its own context. And how do we work out the authority of natural revelation, the sufficiency of natural revelation, perspicuity? Um, and, and though, and it was a, it's an, I've never seen anything like it. It's an ingenious way to think about what natural revelation is. Now, Vintel's clear that natural revelation is not sufficient for salvation, mm-hmm. but it's sufficient for the purposes for which God intends it. One of which is to render us inexcusable. Mm-hmm. So when we apply those attributes to natural revelation, we begin to see how there's never been a time, if we could put it this way, even before the fall, when natural and special revelation were not inextricably bound together for human beings made in the image of God. So, so Paul says, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, eternal power, divine nature, have been clear. Since the creation of the world, and Paul's thinking, if you, if you read Romans 1 uh, carefully, you can see there that he's actually thinking about Genesis 1 to 3. What does the image of God look like mm-hmm. now that man has fallen? What does it look like? And so since the creation of the world, Adam and Eve saw God and everything made, and they heard God speak to them. So they had special and they had natural right there at the beginning. And it's been that way ever since. What happened at the fall is that those things tend to be uh, separated. And what Christianity does is bring this back together for us. Yeah, and to help out the audience, if you guys are hearing different terms, uh, the, when I said the book of nature, that's natural revelation. When I said the book of scripture, that's special revelation. 
Um, right. So jumping into my first question here, uh, as uh, you previewed already, you like the label covenantal apologetics. I, we like that too. So it's good. Um, <laughs> what's distinct about your approach with, to engaging with non-believers? And I teed up a little kind of the philosophy kind of stuff in Romans, but yeah, go for it. Yeah. So um, let me, let me get on another hobby horse. I think that, I think the term presuppositionalism is horrible. Hmm. It's obscure. <laughs> um, it, it moves people away from what we're trying to say. Hmm. Uh, it's created its own chaos. Yeah, yeah. And so in, in my class, you know, I'm pretty legalistic about it. I tell students, you can't use that term in my class. I said, when you get out of my class, you could say whatever you want. <laughs> I recognize the term is out there. It's probably yeah. not going to die. But it's done more to harm what we're trying to do than to help. Because for what reason? Well, partly because it's a philosophical term, not a biblical term. Hmm. And so it makes people think that we're really interested in nothing but philosophy. Now, philosophy is important. Mm -hmm. I teach some of it here. You've learned some of it at, at seminary. That's an important thing to do. But not because people in the church need a whole lot of philosophy. It's because mm -hmm. we need to know what are the undergirding principles and principia, if you will, of people uh, who in the church may have been affected by these things and aren't, aren't even aware mm -hmm. of the kinds of ideas that have affected them. And you can get to kind of the root of that. So that's important, but it's not as important uh, for the church. What's important for the church is to understand that what we're trying to do theologically is, first of all, biblical and second of all, reformed in its theology. So I, I talked to an, an apologist, this was 30 plus years ago, and we were talking back and forth, and he didn't know much about me. I knew a good bit about him. He was a, a, a confessed atomist and classical apologist, and he said to me, um, he said, I gather you're a presuppositionalist. And I said, yes. And he said, well, are you Carnelian or Schaeferian hmm. or Henrian or <laughs> Clarkian or mm -hmm. Ventilian? That was my first clue hmm. that the term it's not helpful. There's something very distinctive about Van Til's own approach that's wholly different from what those other men were doing. And I and I appreciate all of them in various mm -hmm. ways that that I've that I've mentioned. So this is not a personal thing. It's a theological thing. There's something Van Til's doing uh, that those other men are not doing. And and if you if you just couch it as presuppositionalism, you've got an ism there. That um, that's going to obscure what you're trying to do. So, so the the word as I as I read reread Van Til again and again, and, and as I was writing the book, you know, I was, I was uh, initially asked to write this kind of intro to apologetics, and and I thought, given the overwhelming emphasis in Van Til's own writing, covenantal seems to be better. What does it do? It helps us recognize at least that every person. Christian and non-Christian is in a relationship with the true God. Um, that's one of the reasons why every person knows the true God, because that knowledge is meant, as Paul puts it, uh, to extend itself into giving thanks to God and honoring God. But instead of doing that, what do we do when we're apart from Christ? Without Christ, what we do is we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, that's a relationship with God, but it's a relationship characterized by wrath. But wrath is a relationship. It's not a non-relationship. It's what hell is going to be for eternity as a relationship with God, the true God, which is not a happy one. The other relationship is a relationship 
under grace. And, and, and so I, 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 I like to characterize it as people being either in Adam or in Christ. Those are covenantal terms because God has set history up in such a way that we have two and only two representatives. And every person is related mm-hmm. to one of two representatives. And in that relationship, ultimately, is related to God. Every person is a covenant creature in that sense. And what that does is it helps us recognize that we're not talking to people who are outside the purview of the God that we worship. We're talking to people who are dead in the middle of the purview of the God that we worship and are under wrath because of that. And so they, like we, need the gospel. And and it helps us recognize that the things that we're discussing here are not totally foreign to the people to whom we speak. Anytime we speak to someone who's not a Christian about the God that we worship, God has already been there speaking in their heart of hearts. And they know whether they'll admit it or not. They know the truth of what we say. And 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 the word of God, the truth of God never returns empty to God, as Isaiah reminds us. It, it never returns void. It always accomplishes the purposes for which God sends it. So what does that do? That connects us to the person who's outside of Christ in such a way that when when I say to somebody, I wouldn't say quite like this, when Mm -hmm. I say to somebody, you owe your allegiance to the God that I worship, if I were to say that, they would know in their heart of hearts, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. But what are they going to do? Apart from the from the work of the Spirit, they're going to suppress that in unrighteousness, say, how dare you say that? You know, that's your opinion. All those kinds of things come out. But you know, even as you've spoken that, that it's reached its mark. Uh, God will use that in his own sovereign way. Now, that's a wonderful encouragement, not only for preaching and evangelism, but it's an encouragement for apologetics. When we speak the truth in defense of the Christian faith, it hits its mark every time because God has already spoken to the people to whom we speak, and he continues to speak to the people to whom we speak. That's a wonderful thing to recognize. And I have yet to see this truth outside of you know, solid Ventilian circles. I've yet to see this truth really dealt with honestly uh, among among Christians. And and so when, when I have when I am an apologetic issue with somebody, my, one of my first places to go is Scripture and say we don't we don't really have a philosophical debate here on, in the first place. We have a biblical theological debate. So can we go to Romans one? Can we go to other places and begin to talk about the sufficiency of God's revelation and and think through that together? Hey, all, this is Peter, one of the co-hosts of the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast with a word from one of our sponsors, our title sponsor at Logos Bible Software. Have you gotten your free book of the month from Logos yet? Join tens of thousands of believers who build their library with a free new digital theological book each and every month. Then read it on the free Logos Bible study app. Logos is the easiest to use, most powerful Bible study tool on the planets. You heard that right, on the planets. It works on mobile, the web, and even has an amazing app for your laptop. I myself use the mobile app every night to read from the Hebrew, the Greek, and a few other resources. I love it. I've used other apps, and this is the best one on the market. It really, truly is. And if you want to go even deeper, you can choose from a vast selection of the top books for in-depth Bible study. There's also step-by-step videos to help you learn how to study the Bible like a pro. So get your free book of the month today. Go to logos.com slash guilt grace 
and get started with Logos today. We have this link in our show notes. So just open up our podcast, find our show notes, click this link, and you can get started with us with Logos Bible Software. Have you been thinking about going to seminary for a while and wondered, what would a day in the life of a seminarian look like? Westminster Seminary California is hosting their spring seminary for a day on Friday, March 17th, 2023. This is an all-day, community-wide event designed to give you a taste of seminary life, the rigor of Westminster academics, the friendships outside the classroom, living together in the Westminster Village, eating with faculty and staff, and more. Westminster has a special treat for those who attend. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, Vice Chairman of Ligonier Ministries and Chancellor's Professor of Systematic Theology at Reformed Theological Seminary, will be delivering his Robert G. Dendolk Lectures of Preaching at Chapel. You're not going to want to miss this. At Westminster, we think that an in-person visit is the best way to experience our community, classes, and campus. So to that end, they're offering a $400 travel grant to prospective students to help ease the burden of their travel expenses to visit sunny San Diego. Sign up today to attend Westminster Seminary California's Spring Seminary for a Day on Friday, March 17th, 2023. Visit www.wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474 or click on our show notes for direct link to sign up. Westminster Seminary California for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Are you a student who's looking to go deeper into classical Protestantism and our theological heritage? What about a pastor who wants some sharpening of his theological, exegetical, and historical toolboxes? Are you a layperson who's looking for theological wisdom? Maybe you're an educator looking to lay a classical foundation in theology. The Davenant Institute seeks to retrieve the riches of classical Protestantism to renew and build up the contemporary church. And key to this mission is their educational arm, Davenant Hall. In an age where much theological education both overlooks the riches of church history and keeps students in debt, Davenant Hall is reimagining theological education. They take full advantage of digital technology to make high-quality theological education affordable via online classes. Davenant's offers an MLIT in classical Protestantism with the standard and pastoral ministry tracks, and a brand new PhD program in partnership with Union Theological College and Dominant Hall supervisors. Yet they insist that in-person fellowship is key to Christian formation. So to that end, they host regular residentials at the Dominant House Study Center in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountain region of South Carolina. Registration for spring 2023 classes running April to June are now open, but registration closes March 29th. Fees start at just $225 for a 10-week class with a two-hour Zoom class from expert professors each week. Classes include the Reformation in the Modern World, a Biblical Theology of the Sexes, Augustine's City of God, and so many more. These classes look incredible. Visit www.davenanthall.com to find out more or www.davenantinstitute.org for more 
information about the whole organization or go to our show notes and click on the link. Yeah, and it's such a great reminder that we're, we are originally created to worship God. And since the fall, worship is distorted. And so that's exactly. why even non-believers worship. They worship something, but the devil can't create anything. He just distorts creation. So, um, yeah. But, uh, <clears throat> and, and, and to to your point, when when Paul when Paul is 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 talking about writing about the suppression of the truth and unrighteousness in Romans one, part of what he says is that uh, that cashes out as worshiping and serving. The very strong words he uses, the mm-hmm. very strong verbs he has there, worshiping and serving something created. Rather than the creator. So there's no person. I think Calvin said this in book one of the Institutes, what mm-hmm. separates us from everything created is we must worship something. Mm-hmm. So there's no there's no one out there who's not worshiping something. So when people uh, feign apathy uh, mm-hmm. with you, I, I just don't care. I'm not interested. Mm-hmm. That's suppression of the truth and unrighteousness, because you know, mm-hmm. and they know when they say in their heart of hearts, guess what? They they are committed. They are committed and holding on tightly to something or some things such that their very lives, they think, depend on it. So oh, everyone absolutely. is worshiping yep. in that particular way. Yep. Mm. Totally. Oh, this is so good. This is the stuff I geek out on. I just I, I just love this type of conversation because <laughs> um, it, it just gets to the core of things. And everyone, um, believer and non-believers, they know there's evil in the world. And that's undeniable across the board. And that's, and, and I think that kind of goes back to kind of a natural revelation. Like we all know there's evil in the world. And really there's, I think we, we as Christians know that only Christianity can answer the, the, the problem of evil, the question of why is that evil, why is evil exists? So, um, and then when we go to scripture, I love Genesis 15 because we learn that God can't lie or he would cease to be God. So that kind of points to, addressing uh, the problem of evil question, but this kind of goes into what I want written down for the question for you is, can you describe the theological and philosophical underpinnings of this approach when engaging with those from outside the Christian faith? Yeah. Um, so let me, let me try this. Um, I, I have a, a good friend who's not a believer. He was, he was raised as a Jew. He's ethnically Jewish, but he's rejected that religiously is a dear man. Um, and, uh, he, he knows we, we've had a lot of good discussions about things like this. Well, he came back from a trip uh, a number of years ago in a foreign country. And, uh, you know, I was glad to see him and said, how, how was your trip? And he, he got, um, he got fairly pointed with me and he sort of got the finger in the face and he said, your God cannot exist when there's that kind of suffering mm-hmm. that I've experienced on my, on my trip. And okay, now what do you do with that? So you just pause for a minute. Somebody says that to you, your God cannot exist. So, you know, it's not the first time I've heard things like this. So um, I was somewhat prepared for it. And, I, and I, I said to him, tell me what kind of God it is that you think I worship such that he cannot exist in those kinds of conditions. Now, look what that question has done. It has put the onus back on him. He's already told me my God can't exist. I've challenged him to define my God in such a way 
that there's no possibility he could exist. You see what happened? The tables were turned. And and instead of saying, oh, yes, he does, you know, and I could have I could have done that, you know, other ways to address it. But but I wanted him to think carefully about what he's just put on to me. And I wanted to put it back on him. Now, he he looked at me. uh, He smiled. Conversation was over. And then uh, a while later, he called and said, "Uh, can I pick you up? I want to talk to you. And we and we had a nice conversation about the gospel. So it, it resonated within him. And and he wanted he wanted to hear more, and we still have discussions. I wish I could say you know now he's converted, but the the point of that is, when you get an objection like that, think about what is behind the actual objection before you jump into a quick kind of knee jerk response, and and oftentimes the best thing to do with objections like that is to ask further questions. Hmm. Um, Tell me what you mean by that. Tell me why you think that's a problem. So, so one of the things I do in my in, in my mock dialogue, one of my mock dialogues in covenantal apologetics, is I I work with this atheist um, sort of back and forth. And nice thing about writing a book with mock dialogues is you can always win the dialogue. Um, <laughs> but I, I I tried I tried not to set it up that way. I tried to be you know, as objective and honest as I could, but also bring out some of the issues of what could be a back and forth conversation. And and one of the things I, I did in that mock dialogue was re- remind the atheist that, that the problem of evil is only a problem if 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 God exists. In mm-hmm. other words, there the incompatibility of God and evil presupposes a certain idea about who God is and a mm-hmm. certain idea about what evil is. Now, as many have pointed out, the atheist really doesn't have that kind of standard. So evil is more of a sociological phenomenon, mm-hmm. um, maybe maybe a personal uh, affront or a personal belief or something like that. And you can get into the relativism of that. Um, it's not, it's not um, uh, wrong to do that or, or even unprofitable to do that. But the point I was trying to make with the atheist is if you're going to challenge me with my problem, I define what that problem means. And I define, number one, who this God is, and number two, what evil is, because it's my problem. It's not your problem at this point. We can talk about your problem, but right now it's my problem. So that gives me all kinds of leeway to begin to tell people, this is who God is. And the only way I know this is not because I'm smarter than you, not because I have a degree. The reason I know this is because God has spoken. And by the way, you can know it too, because God has spoken. Um, You want to help people recognize that, that you're not above them and, and a better thinker or more, you know, cogent because of your uh, incredible acumen, but you are who you are because of what Christ has done in and through you. And so then you can begin to say, well, here's, here's how, here's how God uh, reveals himself in, in Holy scripture. And by the way, um, he alone has moved to solve the actual problem that you bring up in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, so you can, what a, what a, what an easy trend, an easy transition to move from this sort of abstract idea, problem of evil to there is a lot of sin in the world. All of us are involved in it. Guess what? We can't solve that problem. Only God can. And he has, and this is how he's done it. So it's a, it's a movement. It, it, it ought to be a movement from, yes, it's a problem, but guess what? God saw it as a problem, and God saw if it was going to be fixed and remedied, he alone could do it, and he did do it in an absolutely remarkable way.
And then can I tell you about this way? And that's that's what you do. You talk to people about about the cross, um, the death of death. The last enemy is actually destroyed, as John Owen liked to put it, mm -hmm. uh, at the cross. And so now we're waiting for the consummation of that. But it's done. Victory's done. Uh, we're waiting for the consummation. That's how I think that's one of the ways it's helpful to address, um, you know, what can be just an abstract problem and to move it uh, to a, a biblical narrative. Hmm. Yeah, I'm going to kind of combine just based off what I'm hearing and and um, moving this to the next part, but kind of combine a couple questions into into one. Um, and you've talked about this a little bit, and I think generally speaking, apologetics tends, or at least when people think about apologetics, they, they think about kind of more the defense a little bit less. So what it sounds like what you're talking about is kind of the also the positive upbuilding of the faith. Is, is you can maybe talk about, it's one of your chapters in your book too, chapter five, um, about the the negative and positive aspects of of covenantal apologetics and engaging with non-believers. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Like what, I mean, what, like not to say there's this, there's this sharp distinction between both of them, but how how do they kind of play off each other when you're talking to a, a non-believer? Yeah, thanks. Uh, you know, one of the things um, I think Ventil is very helpful in is uh, he said it's kind of a two-stage uh, methodology. And again, it, it, there's um, it, this, this is not meant to be a, a kind of wooden scenario as totally. if I do this, I'm in this box, and I do mm -hmm. this, I'm in that box. But you're thinking in, in, in kind of both categories. Um, the, the one stage, uh, Van Til would say, uh, get on the ground of the unbeliever and then uh, ask them, you know, the, the, the hard questions. Um, uh, how, how would they justify their own position, you know, given given what they're thinking um, and 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 begin to ask, you know, why they would believe uh, things like that? Because what, what you'll find out is there's really not much there other than their own particular belief. Well, I, I like this and I know some other guys who like this. And so this is, this is where I'm, I'm going to go. Um, I had this interaction in a book. Um, I think it's called Christianity philosophy or something like that, where there were four views. Mm -hmm. um, and Graham Oppie was, was one of the interlocutors there. And he's an atheist an extremely uh, brilliant, intelligent, prolific atheist. And um, so, uh, you know, one of the things he mentions there is that, um, you know, if, if he were, if he were pressed, you know, everything is matter. That's all there is, is matter. And he said, you know, if I, if I was pressed, if I were pressed, I would, I would say that there needs to be some sort of necessary thing at the beginning hmm. um, in, in order to establish the, the contingencies that follow. Well, that's that's blind faith. I mean, mm -hmm. you got, you, you know, you're outside of the area of the empirical at that mm -hmm. point and you're going to posit something here. Uh, why, why even posit such a thing? Well, because it grates on him mm -hmm. that if it's contingencies all the way back, you know, then it, then it's nothing but contingencies all the way forward. And even his own view is nothing but a chance contingency. Um, and, and, you know, and so what is that? That's that's the census divinitatis sort of grading on his soul, I think, where he he sort of pulled to posit a blind faith necessity. Um, that's getting on his own ground. Say, OK, I, I can kind of see why, why you would want to do that. The second thing Van Til says is now invite them to come onto your ground. And to show them why, on your basis, some of these issues um, that they're wrestling with can be adequately addressed. As a matter of fact, if they're really issues, all of them can be addressed adequately 
uh, not because, again, we're smarter and we've read a lot, but because God has spoken and, and God has spoken in such a way uh, that we recognize uh, God rules the universe. We are his creatures made in his image and our our responsibility is to honor and glorify him. So uh, given all of that, then we have a place to stand and a place to help people recognize where they could stand. So it's kind of uh, two parts. You get on their ground, that's sort of negative apologetics. Let's mm. Let's defend, let's let's build the wall, let's make sure whatever things are pressing in don't actually breach, hmm. all right? That's that's important. I use the example in my uh, book of, of Alvin Plantinga's um, free will defense, hmm. uh, which I have to, you know, introduce uh, the caveat that I don't agree with Plantinga's theology. He sort of developed his own version of Molinism there, but he does a, he does a very nice job that uh, bracketed, he does a very nice job methodologically of showing uh, how you stave off certain objections. And and there are many philosophers now who say that planning and basically solved the logical problem of evil, which doesn't mean he solved the pastoral problem or the evidential problem, but the logical problem as it's set, planning has showed that, you know, if there, that even though there might be some incompatibility there, unless that incompatibility is necessary, which it isn't, no one says it is. It can only be probable. And if it's probable, it's maybe this, maybe that. So good for him for, for working through that, planning it, planning his genius was applied to that. That's the staving off. And planning is clear. He says, I'm going to offer here a defense, not a theodicy. So mm-hmm. I'm going to defend so they don't breach, but I'm not going to give you the theodicy, the justification mm-hmm. for why. So that's what we do when we come back to our side and we try to help people understand, here's why I believe what I believe. Mm-hmm. And we can be clear, I think, and honest and say, the view that I hold, the Christian view, is not without its own questions, is not without its own conundrums. But but Van Til's point is, it's the only place on which we can have the possibility of rational answers, because outside of this, you're never going to get it. I call it in the book, the quicksand quotient. You're just mm-hmm. standing on quicksand and you're sinking further and further down. Uh, so that's the sort of positive and negative you don't want to just say uh, boo to your position and your position's not uh, fruitful and I've, I've taken care of you. You don't want to just say that. You want to say, oh, by the way, can I tell you why I believe what I believe and what I think about these things and, and why I think unless you have uh, God's own revelation as your foundation, you're really not going to be able to stand anywhere in the first place. And that's going to move you to the contents of God's revelation uh, where hopefully you can um, not only defend the Christian faith in that way, but also commend the Christian faith and particularly the gospel of Christ. Hmm. Yeah, that's, I think that's, that's a helpful kind of bridge into the, to this because you, you've already kind of previewed it a little bit. So my, my last question before, for Nick's and I'm going to summarize it like this. Um, I think some of the criticism around presuppositional or covenantal, um, however people may see it. And I know the, kind of more proper term is covenantal for this, um, is sometimes those who come with these arguments, they kind of come across as jerks. And I think people, some people notice that. I was like, well, why would I want to take that approach if I come across this way to to people that they just think I'm, I'm mean and nasty. I just want to break down the worldview and kind of walk away victoriously that I just, I just won the battle. And, but you talk about wisdom in these conversations, uh, how we are to approach these conversations, how maybe, to uh to put a cap on this question how how can we how can we do this and i know it's gonna it's gonna come across to people who don't share our our, uh um our faith in a a way that we just can't control um but how can we be come across as 
to the best of our abilities without sounding like, Hey, I gotcha. Yeah, that's good. Um, you know, when I, uh, when I was first converted, I was converted by some dear people, uh, all of whom were basically Arminian, mm-hmm. many of whom I, I still know and, and love. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm thankful for their input into my, into my life in those early days. And then after reading Van Til, and while I was reading Van Til, this transition happened that was mm-hmm. pretty remarkable. Um, it was during that time that Star Wars had just came, came out, had just come out. And I remember <laughs> yeah. telling a friend, I feel like I've gone into light speed. You remember in, in the, you know, what's the <laughs> yeah. spaceship yep. and all of a sudden everything's yep. left behind and you're just, it's a whole new, and that's the way I felt. And, and what that, uh, what that did, um, unfortunately in, in me was uh, engender a, a person who was kind of a theological jerk at that yeah. point. Um all Arminians were uh, heretics and and uh, <laughs> yeah. and and should be should be uh, you know relegated to Rhode Island and leave the rest of us alone. It was that kind of thing, <laughs> you know. I began to I began to act that way with my family, right. with people who had had uh, ministry in my own life, and that was just that was just wrong. And um, you know, it took it took a while. I, I'm not I'm not clear of all of that, but but the, <laughs> yeah. but the point is when you when you sort of get this and understand it, you realize that this really is the way to think about these things uh, because it's biblically rooted. It's, it's theologically grounded. You get, you know, you sort of get energized by it and that can make you, um, that can make you a kind of jerk where anybody who doesn't get it is, is an idiot or. Yeah. Enter the cage stage. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and I'm not an expert on social media, but I think it's, 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 uh, it's made this worse. So there are there are jerks out there. Um, I've I've had experience with plenty of them, and um, they're they're always going to be out there. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's my way or the highway down to every jot and tittle of what I think. Or or you're obviously a heretic. <laughs> they're out there. They'll always be out there. But what we have to do, I think, is to try to, um, by the grace of God, recognize that, and then and then see that except for the grace of God, we'd be where this person is. I know except for the grace of God, I'd still be an Armenian. I'd be a Christian, but there'd be some serious flaws in what I was thinking about God yeah. myself. Or except for the grace of God, I'd still be a pagan or a Roman Catholic. So there are all these things that I have to remember when I'm talking to people that God has a design in place for people. And it's not, and it's certainly not that they become like me, but it's like it's mm-hmm. that they become like Christ. And And if I can be instrumental in that, then I thank the Lord for that kind of process. So, so I think, um, you know, Machen's warrior children was meant (laughs) to be a fight against unbelief and not a fight uh, with other Christians who don't believe exactly what I believe. And it's, it's sort of transitioned into a, into a bad scenario in my view. And, and I hope it goes away. Um, but, but part of, but part of that is uh, for me as well, um, when, uh, when we talk about conducting ourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity, one, one of the things that I've tried to develop is the, uh, is the notion of persuasion in, in Christian apologetics. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I mean two things by that. Number one, only the Holy Spirit can convert a human heart. So I don't mean by that, that we're, we're into a sales technique so that mm-hmm. we can actually do that. But, but what I mean by that is that since, since everyone knows God, we have something to which to appeal in every person that hopefully will draw them into 
the actual discussion that we're having with them. So the the grand example, which is you know so much ink spilled over this, but is Paul's address in at Athens, mm-hmm. um, and and again it's it's in the book. But let me just try to summarize here because there again there are some misunderstandings. I heard I heard a a, a dear man who who I appreciate so much uh, say recently that uh, what Paul's saying at Athens is that the Greeks got it right. That's not what Paul's saying at Athens. Why does Paul use the poets at Athens? Let's say it's Epimenides and Eratus. Let's just go with that. And and I think one of the reasons he does that is not to say they got it right, hmm. because when when the poet writes, uh, when Epimenides writes, in him we live and move and exist, the him is Zeus. Mm-hmm. That makes the proposition false. Paul knows that. That's why he uses it. But the him for Paul is the God that he's just described in the previous verses at his address at the Areopagus. And so he's already defined the him that he's referring to in that proposition. So what Paul is saying is, guess what? The Greeks got it wrong, but the structure of the sentence is correct. So the form is right. The matter is wrong. The form is right. The reference is wrong, right? There is someone in whom we live and move and exist. It's not Zeus. It's the God that I've just spoken of, uh, who doesn't need, isn't you know, it doesn't dwell in temples made by hand. It doesn't need anything, Lord of heaven and earth, sovereign, created from one man. All these kinds of things that Paul gives to the Athenians. So why is Paul using it? He's using those statements in order to bring his Athenian audience into the realm in which he's discussing all this to say, guess what? You've always believed this, in him we live and move this. Keep believing it. Change the referent, because now it's the true God. Now, that's persuasion. That's persuasion. So Oz Guinness used this great illustration, and I actually asked Oz about this a couple of years ago. I mentioned it to him. I said, I've used your illustration before. He says, I have no memory of using that. So so I said, okay, I'm going to call it mine then. It's my <laughs> illustration. But I actually did get it from Oz. I'm not sharp enough to do it, but Oz was talking about persuasion. This was 30 plus years ago, and he said, what you want to avoid in evangelism and apologetics is what he called the burp effect. He said, you know, we're really good at burping the gospel onto people so that we feel a lot better, but they're offended. It's mm. it's that kind of burp. But now I feel good. I've just, bleh, you know, you're oh. going to hell, trust Christ. Uh, he said, we don't want to do that. What we want is to help draw people in, again, according to God's own wisdom, according to what we know about them from Scripture, to draw them into the discussion as best we're able so that we can have a real conversation with them. That's part of what was behind my question to my my Jewish friend. Uh, what kind of God is it that you think I don't believe in? Because that immediately resonates with him in terms of what he internally knows in his own heart. So, So if we take the wisdom approach Uh, we can recognize that God is already working in and among these people who don't know Christ by revealing himself through everything he's made and in their own hearts and works of the law. So he's now wanting us to draw them in to the discussion as best we're able. And so we find, we want to find those points of resonance in him. We live and move and exist so that we can then redefine those in a way that gives them true biblical and scriptural content that keeps us from the, confrontation you're an idiot and i'm not kind of kind of approach and i I think that's been too uh too prevalent especially among the reform because because reform theology is so good because Mm -hmm. it's so biblical Mm -hmm. and we get in our excitement can easily translate into jerkiness and so you know again 
I don't pretend to be above and beyond. I'm not transcending <laughs> yeah. all this. All you people. That's not the point. Point is, I've got those tendencies. We all have those tendencies. We just yeah. have to beware and watch out and, and and make sure that those don't come across. Love it. Yeah, that's great. Real quick, uh, that example uh, appreciate is the, the Paul in Athens example. Um, is it good to say that what Paul was doing is? Uh, compare and contrast or clarify by comparison when he's talking about Zeus Greek philosophy versus God. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he he's in a sense, he ends up with that because he says, you know, we, so he says, so therefore we ought not to think that the divine nature is like images that you make. You know, how could you think that when you yourselves say that in him, we live in the, so is, are the images that you've made God or is God someone in whom you, he's getting at their own sort of contradiction of thinking. Now he's doing this in Athens, by the way, where that's pretty important. And then notice he moves sort of seamlessly to, oh, by the way, uh, all this has been proven by the resurrection from the dead. And so God commands all people, that is everybody in that audience, everybody knew that God commands all people everywhere to repent. And so he finishes, he actually finishes with the very topic that got him in trouble in the marketplace in the early part of Acts 17, when, when Luke tells us Paul's in the marketplace and the Epicureans and Stoics are there and they're, they begin to mock him because he's talking about strange deities because of the resurrection. Now you might be tempted if somebody's mocking you because of the resurrection, you might be tempted. Well, I'm going to go another way. They don't like that. Paul doesn't go another way. He says, oh, by the way, speaking of the resurrection, <laughs> that's God's proof of everything I've now told you. He goes right back to it. And then and then Luke, helpfully, under the inspiration of the Spirit, gives us the three reactions, doesn't he? Uh, some people mocked him. So the mockery continued. All right. So does that mean Paul failed? No. It means that the Spirit's working in his own sovereign way, not converting some. Some mocked him. Some said, hey, Paul, can we go get a cup of coffee? We'd like to hear more. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and some believed, including, Luke says, Dionysus, the Areopagite. So so at least that's one who's who part of his uh, position was to sit on the council to judge the speeches at the Areopagus. And you can you can almost picture him sitting in the audience, you know, kind of arms crossed and oh, I'll listen to this guy. And, and then all this kind of melting as Paul uh, delivers his proclamation and hearing about Christ and Dionysius coming to Paul and saying, I, I surrender, I believe. So you've got all three responses, all of which are up to the sovereign spirit and all of which are going to be responses that we get in apologetics. And we just need to recognize that going in, I think. Hmm. That's good. And a few, few takeaways uh, based on your tremendous help with this topic, on your wisdom of this. Uh, before my very last question, just kind of uh, takeaways on this. Uh, knowing that, you know, the covenantal apologetics is the art of persuasion is greater than the science of just demonstration. I think you mentioned that kind of in one of your books. Um, and that systematic theology, systematic theology, aka dogmatics, is really apologetics when we kind of look at it in a broader frame. And with our us reformed people have a covenantal biblical lens. So when we speak about systematic theology, dogmatics, we automatically have a covenantal apologetic method is what I'm kind of feeling like uh, is true. Um, 
And then you kind of point to some, for the audience, some uh, biblical verses that you helped mention in, in your Covenantal Apologetics book. Um, just kind of briefly, Hebrews 12, Joshua uh, 5, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, and then Ephesians 6, the armor of God, which is a really good one, just talking about how we are put on armor of God really for defense of the gospel, not necessarily to attack people, but to defend you know, um, we have the breastplate of righteousness and that kind of stuff to defend attacks. And it's up to the Holy Spirit to uh, convict or convert. And uh, Christ is really the commander of the Lord's army. Um, yeah. Did I get all that right before my last question? Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, and remember, I, I bring this out in the in the latest book, Faithful Apologists. Remember, the armor that we put on is first of all Christ's armor. So yeah. we have it, you know, as Isaiah tells it, it, we have it because we're in union with Christ. We're united to Him, and so in that sense, He continues to be the commander of the Lord's army, and He's enlisted the likes of us uh, to fight the battle. And so we fight the battle, as Paul says, uh, with spiritual warfare. The, the, the one thing I'd like to mention here, if you don't mind, is, is, is I haven't made this point as specifically, but First uh, Peter 3 helps us recognize that apologetics is not for the experts only, it's for the church. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're to set Christ apart as Lord, and we're all meant to be ready to give a defense, and, and Peter's word there is, is, is the word from which we get apologetics. So it's a churchly activity that we're all meant to do. And if God uh, commands us to do that, he gives us the resources necessary. So the resources necessary for, for a biblical apologetic are not um, uh, an MDiv, THM, and a PhD, but the resources are the Word of God uh, along with the Spirit of God and and conversations with people. Uh, I Not to excuse the kind of self-promotion, but I wrote this book called The Battle Belongs to the mm-hmm. Lord in order and I took particular verses from scripture and tried to show the biblical implications of that for the church. And I tried to weed out all of the difficult terminology and just stick with Bible truth so that the church could begin to understand, Hey, God has equipped us to do this. And actually some people understand when I'm doing evangelism, it's actually incorporating some strong apologetic elements as I talk to people about the gospel and why I believe it. So I think it's useful for the church to recognize God has enlisted all of us to fight this battle of which he is in charge, but he uses, again, sinful people, sinful redeemed people uh, to, to, uh, to fight that battle. And we're meant to do it, not in our own way, but in the Lord's way. And we get that from what scripture has, has already told us. Awesome. Well, Dr. Oliphant, thank you so much for your wisdom um, your, uh, help in distilling reformed thought, reformed apologetics, and, um, not just setting a better path for, but kind of distilling some of the stuff that's within the reformed heritage and, uh, reformed hermeneutics and looking at scripture and having a thoroughly reformed biblical apologetic and, and things we have to think about and, and how to do it as, as kindly, but as, as forcefully, because that's, that's, we have the truth and we want people to know the truth. Um, but you, you, you don't want to set unnecessary stumbling blocks in front of the truth because the truth itself is a stumbling block in and of itself exactly. if we prevent it if we pre- uh, present it clearly so yeah dr exactly. olden thank you so much for coming on thank you for your work and um yeah it's it's been a pleasure having you on it's a pleasure to meet you guys thanks for having me of course
Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to the episode of our podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude. And if you go to our show notes, as a reminder, there is a link to Patreon and you can find out how to become a bridge builder. Yeah, we've got five different support levels and the levels go from uh, just a a $5 donation to help keep the lights on and and get some equipment all the way up to you guys get to be part of our decision-making process for episodes, for content, for authors, for guests, whoever it may be. And you guys get consistent conversations, maybe even since our episodes, the second that we record them, instead of having to wait for episodes to come out. So look at that, see what you wanna do. As part of that, we have a goal to get about $1,000 a month. That's to cover some costs, get some new equipment, and just hire some people as well. And also, if you guys can rate and review us on iTunes, on Spotify, on any one of your podcasting platforms, This is the number one way besides word of mouth that word gets out about what we're doing. So we hope to see you guys next week.